Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. I'm going to tell Noah that he's got to run for his money on on startup music. It's going to be you from now on. I do hear that we have at least one listener out there. I'd like to give her a shout out who dances. We to have one our, listener? We have one listener who dances <laughs> to our music and is not a software developer. She just, every, every time her, her boyfriend plays the podcast, she gets up and dances. That opening track is fire. I it believe is, is what the kids is. refer to it as. It's hot. It's fire. Lit. It's, it's a good. Lit. It's a good track. I want the whole track. <laughs> well, <laughs> never uh, hear that first part. I'll, I'll have to get it for you. I'll talk we to should, Noah. Yeah, I want that. He's got a few others. I'll just send them all to you, and you can you can critique him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I like that track a lot. I was really happy the first time you uh, sent that over to me. I was like, this is good. This is like a legitimately good song. <laughs> We'll I mean, because ma- like you were like, well, yeah, my son's gonna put us to track together, and I just in my mind I was like, oh boy, what is this gonna be? <laughs> Get it back, and it's yeah. Who knows? Dung. Could be anything. Could Dung. be anything at all. Dung. That's Elixir true. man, elixir man spawns the processes whenever he can. Oh man, I don't know. We might have to. We might have to switch it up. Maybe <laughs> maybe we'll have some out music from now on. <laughs> Chris making up songs on the fly at the end of the episode. Mm, I don't think anybody <laughs> wants that, really. <laughs> My kids hate it. I make up songs all the time about about the stuff that they're doing, especially when they're doing something wrong. Instead of like getting mad, I just like make up ridiculous songs about them doing it. <laughs> Noah not doing homework never wants to be successful just wants to lay around and do nothing <laughs> that's probably probably horrible i'm probably destroying them but you know whatever. yeah no that's not gonna that's not gonna come up in therapy at all <laughs> do you have a fund for uh for for therapy we do we have a fund we actually have a fun. Yeah, so like most people have college funds, but I just sort of assume that we're either living in the best timeline where college will, you know, become free in in this country by the time that my kids need to go to college or we're living in what the in the worst timeline where there just won't be college anymore. And then you definitely need therapy. <laughs> right, yeah. So so either way, I don't who knows. So we just been putting a, we put a fund together and we were like this is to undo whatever sort of psychological damage we do to you as parents. <laughs> like as as well-intentioned but failing parents. Like this is now you can do whatever you need to do with this. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that fund will run out faster than you know. <laughs> oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean there's only $5 in there. I mean what are you going to do? It's not really a fund so much as it's <laughs> you know, a lot of cash. <laughs> We got enough money in here for you to get a box of tissues. Go whine to somebody else. <laughs> Whoa, that didn't look like good coffee. That was a face. No, I was laughing. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. So what have you been up to? Oh, prep. Just lots of prep work. So much prep work. What are you prepping for? I have, like, you know, people are like, I've got too much on my plate. But then they're mm-hmm. also like, oh, yeah, I'm just running around putting out fires. Well, at this point, I've just got fires on my plate. That I'm now attempting to put out. <laughs> I've just got a plate. I've got plates filled with fires Plate. that are also spinning, and I'm trying to keep them spinning. Oh yeah. So like, I'm trying to both clear sticks? the plates with the fires while they're spinning. 
It's really good. It's a the, it's a well, lesson in uh, task management and also my inability to say no. Well, if your people. current job doesn't work out, I'm sure that Ringling Brothers could always As use a professional plate act. spinner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can juggle already. So I mean, I'm I'm basically right there. You're halfway there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so so magic, like magician, not like Magic the Gathering. Oh, I did Magic the Gathering as well. Oh, okay. So which so we, which too. one do you want to talk about? Uh, no, we got both <laughs> and juggling. Like we, I think, are related somehow. <laughs> you mean because we're both nerds? Because <laughs> we're both colossal nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> we gotta put this cat back in the bag. <laughs> See, when other people spend their formative years learning how to be engaging and interact with other human beings and they might pick up useful skills like how to i don't know converse carry a conversation enjoy <laughs> the other people's company and i spent that time memorizing all the names of the different ships in the star wars universe <laughs> and practicing my double lifts <laughs> hey, you guys want to see a card trick just here, no. just pick a card. <laughs> Please, any no, card. Really. No, pick one. Pick one. Oh, not that one. That one's the secret card. Don't touch that one. <laughs> Wait, just, just won't, hang on. Won't start over. Do over. <laughs> <laughs> we saw you pick up two cards. I know you didn't. It was no, one. No, no, it was just no, one. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I used oh, to I used terrible. to do magic in different uh, restaurants as a kid. That get there's an event horizon on that. It's only good up until you're a certain age. I would say. And then the cuteness factor is what I referred to it as wears off. And then you become sort of creepy. <laughs> you're, like, you're too old to be doing this, kid. I don't really want you hanging around my table anymore. Yeah, you know, I'm just yeah. I'm just here at Bennigan's trying to eat my blooming onion. You're coming over here asking me to pick a card. You have to get to like 35 before you can start doing it again. And then it's and then it starts to seem OK. Yeah. There, yeah, no, yeah. Time period yeah you, can, you can sort of go. You, there's definitely a trough in the middle there. And it yeah. starts at around, depending on how things go for you in your life, it's somewhere around the age of 12, I think. It's basically where you run out. And then, yeah, you're, not, you're really not good until you hit at least your 20s. Yeah. Takes a lot mm-hmm. of practice. A lot like mm-hmm. writing software. Takes a lot mm-hmm. of practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that that was a good transition there. No, but <laughs> I, so, so here's, here's an interesting thing, though. I think there's a thing about sort of nerds and nerd culture, of which I am proud to be part of. That coincides with all these things, which is like magic or Magic the Gathering or balloon animals or juggling. Not that I've done any or all of these things. <laughs> or even like even other things like um, instruments, like playing music or I'm trying to think of other sort of nerdier like pursuits. But there's an interesting through line for all this stuff, which is that all these things are things that are tangible that you can like gain mastery over. And... I think the thing in there is not that necessarily just that they're tangible, but these are things that are systematizable. Like you can develop a system to get good at this. And this is the thing that I see nerds doing a lot. I find in myself, we work out ways to like systematize the different activities that we take part in. And not only that, but we're sort of interested in things that are systematizable. Like, if we can just find the, the right way to view the problem, like, we can just, like, systematize whatever it is around it. Like, put these 10 steps together, and then that will always be the thing. Then we, like, have mastered that problem. Does that, this is something I'm thinking it, about. Does that, like, it, ring a, like ring true to you? It's, it definitely is. I mean, from, from doing math problems to writing software to 
even reading books, I try to make systems out of it. Otherwise, I'll never get it done. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the interesting thing that I find in, in building the the systems is that as I build the system, I then need to go back and change and improve the system or put little caveats in there. Like every system is a, um, is a flow diagram. Mm-hmm. But, but over time, and the more I learn, actually that diagram expands and gets more complicated. Parts of it might collapse and get simpler over time because I start to see, well, that choice is, is irrelevant. But there's always this expanding and collapsing of the entire decision trees that I have to make every day. Yeah, trying, exactly. trying to figure out. Exactly, exactly. Which I think trying to figure out where to collapse them is, is where the mastery comes in. Right, 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 right. Well, and that's the thing. I, I, when I look at people who do things like through hike the Appalachian Trail or run marathons or whatever. The thing that I find, I mean, first of all, those people are just as big a nerds as anybody else, right? And I think the the interesting part there is the people who can figure out how to do that stuff are the people who are able to break the problem down and start to figure out like, what are all the discrete things I can solve for? And then once I've solved for all those discrete things, I should actually just be able to like sort of solve the holistic thing. So I just find this, I find that like very, very compelling. The idea that, as you say, the decision trees, like you're just sort of solving for all the different leaves of the tree. And then you can sort of collapse it down to like one side of the tree or like, like a smaller tree and build and like solve those problems and like in turn, like solve the whole. So I just blanked out. I had a question. I had a question for you and it, and it went right out. Uh, I think I lost that whole half of the tree right there. <laughs> we we did a reordering of this red black tree and I, I messed it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, I'll get you. I'll get you every time. So how do you how do you start? This is going to go way back. When you started writing software, mm-hmm. did you start out thinking from the very beginning about these decision trees? No. So when when in your I didn't career, even know what a tree was. <laughs> well, you might not have called it a tree, but systems. No, no, not at all. I don't. I think this is a much more recent thought technology that I'm like sort of maybe like stumbling through. Mm-hmm. I'm also not. I don't think a very super analytical person, all things considered. In that sort of faux uh, map of human psyche that is like the Myers Briggs or something like that, mm-hmm. I don't fall into like the an- the more analytical side of things. I fall more into like the intuition side of things. So I think for me, it took me a long time to sort of, I sort of like just like intuited my way through a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to enter into this, this mode of being very like hyper analytical about it. And I do a lot of things based on feel more than I do based on like a system, maybe a systematized, like, or at least nah, what sort of say it, uh, based on a understood and acknowledged system of thinking like that intuition just sort of happens for me personally. Yeah, it took a long time to sort of work through or even really to gain the ability to think through a lot of like the holistic problem. So where I could take a problem and really start to break it down. That was like a practice that I had to develop. And I'm still I mean, honestly, just I'm not very good at that still. Like I still make rudimentary mistakes because I don't think through the entire thing ahead of time. And I think that there are people who can do that. And I am not necessarily one of them. That's like a skill that I've had to learn. The thing that I'm pretty good at is being able to see, if I'm going to be honest, the thing that I'm fairly good at is being able to see the bigger picture of stuff and how it fits and like in the ways that sort of like the macro, the macro ways that these things can all fit together and to have sort of macro ideas about software 
much more than the like minute technical details. Like I'm, I'm much, much worse at that and much, much worse about sitting there and being able to think through all that stuff. So how do you overcome that? Like, what are some of the, the things that you do to, I I'm in a very similar situation. I am very on the intuitive side of the Myers-Briggs and the, the emotional side too, instead of that, that stone analytical. And I have all kinds of little things that I do, but I'm curious of what things you do. I think there's two sides of it because it's always two things. Uh, at least it might be sometimes it's three things, but generally I try to, I try really hard to go through a practice of like thinking through the problem. And I try to force myself through that thinking through the problem. And often the thing that I have to do is like catch myself when I make an intuitive leap to something and really question whether that's the right thing to do. And that's really hard. It's really hard for me to catch myself when I do that. So I actually do like keep a notebook and I actually try to write down the different steps, the problem statement. Like I try to think through what are the things that I know. I try to think through the things that I don't know. And I try to work out like the different details. And essentially, this is all just lifted straight out of how to solve it, like at least the first chapter, which is sort of the meaningful chapter of that book in a general sense. The rest of it is pretty mathy. That's a really, really good book by Polya. It's a really seminal text on all this stuff, on how to solve problems. And, and a lot of it is like generally applicable, especially like, the first chapter and a half, maybe two chapters are really, really generally applicable. The book is about math and how to solve math problems, but there is a lot to be gleaned from that book. And, and the, the different, I mean, the, the other thing is that book went on to like inspire like a whole way of like talking about and teaching into like math intuitively. And that's uh, where we get a lot of like our teaching methodologies these days and stuff like that. But that all beside the point, the process that I tend to go through is like, what is the problem? What are the things I know about this problem? What are the things I don't know about this problem? What problems have I solved that are similar to this? And are they similar because they're actually similar, like at a foundational level? Or are they similar on a more sort of, what's the right word? Do they have the veneer of a problem that I've solved before? Or are they actually like a a problem that I've solved before? Like, is the core problem the same thing? Because I think that's a real trap, is we fall into this, we start to attempt to replay old solutions on new things just because they look similar, even though the core fundamental thing isn't similar. So I go through that. I try to force myself to go through that if I have enough time to do that. Sometimes you have to make time to do that. And sometimes, you know, the problem doesn't necessarily warrant it. But if I'm solving something like bigger, I'll try to force myself to do that. And from there, I start to try to research and stuff like that figure out like, are there papers about this that I could just pull from? Is this like a well-documented thing in a, in a data structures book or whatever? Can I just like pull Okasaki off the shelf and implement this? Those are real things that I do. And so I don't actually don't keep a lot of stuff in my frontal cache, as it were. I don't keep a lot of like details about libraries and about different data structures and about that kind of stuff, like warmed up. What I have in my brain, hopefully, is all these little connections so that when I see something, I can kind of be like, oh, yeah, that looks like a queue. How do I implement a queue? Well, I can go grab my book and I can like implement a queue or like this looks like a whatever. This looks like a this type of data structure. This is like an interval tree or whatever. Like I can start like if I know these words, I can go look it up. And I do the same thing for like Phoenix and I do the same thing for a lot of Elixir, like the core library. I just don't commit that stuff to memory because it's not really that meaningful to me. But I know that there's a function that does this. And I kind of know where to go find it. So I can go find it over here. And I don't really try to remember that stuff that often. And I just go look it up. Yeah, especially with APIs. Because they're, they're going to change. And the technology you're using is probably going to change at some point. So APIs, I, I just try to 
get a general idea of where to look for everything. Kind of like the, uh, the appendix of a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then when I'm writing code, I try to do things. I have a bunch of practices at this point that I try to put in place in order to make sure I do hit all those technical details. So I do things like write tests, probably not as often as I should, but I try to put real tests in place and I try to make sure my intuitions are correct. And I try to make sure I didn't like goof up stuff because most of the time when I think that I've implemented it correctly, the thing that I've learned is that I haven't like just generally speaking, if I don't validate the thing that I am working on through some sort of test or some sort of REPL or whatever, I personally am pretty bad at getting at the right implementation of a thing until I've really verified it because I just miss details or I like mistype stuff or I, the one I do all the time is I use filter when I should use reject and this kind of things. Like I do all that kind of stuff all the time. I make such stupid little mistakes all the time. And so that's just a personal thing that I've learned to deal with. And uh, I write, yeah, a lot of tests and I validate a lot of my stuff in the REPL and I validate my, a lot of my stuff by using proper based testing and those sorts of things. How often do you build something and then just throw it away and start over? Mm, that's a good question. Not that often in terms of production systems. I actually don't believe in that in terms of production systems. I know that that's like a thing. There's like a talk somebody gave about building software to throw away that I thought was really not a great talk. And I thought it was not leading people to good paths. I don't really believe in the throw it away approach for no other reason than I think that most of the time, and it's like we were talking about last week with refactoring, right? I just don't actually think that that's a real thing. I don't think that's a responsible thing. I think it leads people down these paths where they can break their APIs a lot more often than they realize when they do that. And the example that we even talked about last week is if you have some API and then you discover that it's wrong, you realize that like there's some edge case in there that's just wrong. And so you want to throw it away to make it right. Well, chances are somebody's relying on that thing being wrong on the weird edge case idiosyncrasy thing that your API did before. And now you just broke them. And maybe if you're in a monolith that's only like a couple files big and it doesn't do that much, like it's in like some microservice somewhere and you can control the world, man, maybe that's fine. But I don't think most of us work in that world. Like I don't think most of us are in the place where we can safely just throw that stuff away because you're either in a service where the boundaries are other APIs and potentially other clients that you can't even force to upgrade. Like it's like a mobile client, like an iOS or Android app or something. And you can't force them to upgrade anyway. And so they're reliant on whatever APIs that you built and including all the edge cases. Or you're dealing with other services talking to you who also, who you could force to upgrade, but now you need to have a meeting and schedule like a coordinated deployment effort. And and like, that's going to cost tons and tons of money. And so I just don't, I don't really buy it. Like maybe on like a really small scale, like on a line by line scale. Sure. But in terms of like throwing away the entire implementation of a function, I don't know. I don't know that I'm bought into that idea. I don't do that after it's reached production or anything like that. But in the small scale, like a function or two or a little part of it, I will probably at least twice a month, I would say I write 30, 40 lines of code, throw it out and start over. Because mm-hmm. it, it's just, that's the way that I explore. Sure. It works really well for me. The refactoring thing. So when I think of refactoring, I don't think of changing any functionality or throwing code away. I think of more of 
little minute changes that I can make that just make it easier to add new features or fixing bugs. But yeah, when somebody relies on your bug, it becomes a, a feature often and is, is mm-hmm. very difficult to change. I've run into that quite a few times. Ed have also seen, because of that, APIs that are deprecated for three, four years. <laughs> and and yeah. you're like, at some point, you're like, it's not really deprecated. We just have choices. You can use this new one or the old one. Right. And I think that's why versioning APIs, like web APIs, a lot of them you'll see have like a V1 or a V2 in mm-hmm. there, which to varying degrees are, are done successfully. But that's a lot of it, I think, is that you have to keep around those old APIs until nobody's using them because they do become dependent on things that you didn't intend to yeah. work. Yeah, 100%. Not, I mean, didn't intend and just, yeah, couldn't couldn't anticipate. Right. So does... I think to, to your point, the exploration thing, I will do that. Actually, hilariously, like I use Haskell a lot for that. And I'll go in and use that as like a prototyping language. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to sort of use that to sort of express the the fundamentals of the problem that I want to do. And then I'll rewrite it in something else. It's funny because I don't remember who said this. Someone said this probably on a TV show or something like that when I was a kid. But they said something like, I will never justify a bad thing with the amount of time that I spent working on it. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing, like hearing somebody say that, and I have no idea who it was, at a really young age, imprinted on me super hard. And I have no attachment to the stuff that I end up building in like an emotional sense. Uh, Some things I do, but not really code that often. And I'm happy to like burn the world down to build it correctly. And I'll throw away, like when I was doing the raft stuff, I threw a ton of that away over and over and over again until I got like something that like closely approximated it. I just think that in general, when you're working for a company, you don't really get to do that. And you definitely shouldn't do that even with your libraries. Like once they're out there, they're out there. And like Simver is a lie and it's like the best thing that we have, but that doesn't make it good. And you really don't get to choose. You don't get to choose like when an API is stable or like any of that kind of stuff, your users do that. The users of your API do that. And once they're like committed to something, it's like sort of incumbent upon you to not break their world. I haven't always been super good about that, but I do think that that's a real thing. And I think most of the time when you go out to production, you've already committed. And so you don't really get to go back and, and fix stuff. Like it's not often a business comes to you. I mean, well, so like, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like there's a bunch of reasons for software to change, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them is, one of those reasons is aesthetics. And that's purely us. That's refactoring. Which, by the way, I looked up the definition for the word refactoring and Google didn't know what it was. So that's kind of interesting. Ah. But like aesthetics are us. Like that's us moving stuff around. That's us finding some new abstraction and going, ah, I want it this way now. I'm going to do it this way. This way is better. Right. That also probably is like, here's a new library that does a thing. Let's use that now. Those are purely aesthetic things. And that intermixes breakages and growths as terms of change all the time. Right, because change is two things. Change is either you're growing an API, it's going to do more for you, or you're breaking it, you're taking something away from it. Mm -hmm. So that's aesthetics, right? The other thing is technology, like technical reasons to change. And that's more like security or some sort of compliance thing. Like, oh, there's an actual, we need to update this thing and that's going to like, because it has a security vulnerability. So we have to update it, right? And in some cases, that's going to force you to make a breakage, And you really can't help that. And you kind of have to do that. So you just roll with that one, right? You have to do it because there's a security problem. Totally understandable. But the last is, I am going to put, you know, a judgment out there and say the last, which is the most important, is the business requirements. 
the business requirements come in and they're like, okay, we now need to do this other thing. And the interesting thing about the business requirements being a reason to change is it's the only one of the three that comes with a tacit contract that also says you won't break anything. It's the only one where breakage is not really allowed because businesses don't really come to you that often and go, hey, I want a new feature. And also, can you take five features away when you do that? Right. <laughs> like, like that is not a thing. Every now and then, maybe once a year, that might happen. But most of the time, businesses don't want you to do that. We push for that. Like as a developer group, like developers push for that for mm-hmm. whatever reasons. But by and large, the business requirements are all about I want to do a new thing. They're all about growth. They're never, almost never about breakages. They're never really about, I don't want to do as much as I did yesterday. And so I think figuring out ways to like work within that and figuring out ways to sort of embrace that and come to grips with the fact that like we need to be doing more things that allow for us to grow from like a business requirement sense and not break existing things is like a really, really important, that's a really important thing. And trying to figure out ways to do more of that is like what I've been working on recently. So I find a lot of the, I'll call them code aesthetics, maybe. The choices that you make actually lead to how can I make changes without breaking? Can I make changes quickly? Because the code itself is is about communicating. And Mm -hmm. so what can I do to make that code communicate better and more organized? I've often said that our job is to organize the drunk drawer of the kitchen, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. has one. And at some point you have to organize it. And that's what we do every day. We're constantly organizing the drunk drawer to try to fit new things in there and categorize it so that it's easy to get back to later. So I think that you end up with refactoring just out of, I have to put this new thing in here. And maybe before I had forks and spoons piled up in the side, but now I've got to bring in a knife. And so I need to break these categories apart so that it's easier to get to the thing that I need when I need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, there are valid reasons to find, you know, when you do find a new abstraction, there are valid reasons to do that. I mean, obviously design is a real thing. And we want to make our systems easier to move around in, easier to extend. And that's going to take work on our part. I'm not against that. And I'm not saying that we have to live within with all the prior sins that someone committed. Mm -hmm. I just think we have to do that with the caveat of breaking a system is really like detrimental. Like Mm -hmm. we have to take that seriously. And if you're in services, obviously you're dealing with that on a daily basis. But if you're in a giant monolith, where everything is all in one big app that you can still do that. You start changing around the APIs of what you're working on. And like, you might have ripple effects that go throughout the entire code base. Like, and that's going to force everybody to use your new thing. And hopefully you have some tests in place that, that right? reduce the number of breakages that you're making. Yeah. Or you have a type system that now breaks all your callers, even though all you did was like do a growth only change because their type system can't understand unions or something like that. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to you mentioned using Haskell for prototyping. Mm-hmm. I frequently will use just types, like dialyzer types, and, mm-hmm. and I'll write a bunch of those out as my prototyping when I'm alone. When I'm with other people, I actually prefer to, to talk things out. That's That's what works well for me. And then when I do have a design to ask questions of myself or wh- whoever's around of, of the design and try to poke holes in it and see what's going on. But yeah, I, when I don't have somebody around, I use types a lot. So I Haskell feels like you're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. And I think the Haskell thing specifically is because uh, 
for me is just because it is lazy. You're not really bound by all these. And it's such a terse language. I mean, it's, it's like Python. They looked at Python and they're like, mm, I don't want to type that much. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> it's such a terse language. I think it, it lends itself between that and the laziness to being able to sort of like quickly crank out ideas. And once you kind of get the idea down, it's like, there it is. You've like expressed the problem in sort of the purest form. Mm-hmm. Not just in the, in the sense that like all the functions are pure, but like in the <laughs> sense that like you can see the thing that you built. Like you can see what it was that you did and you can see the problem. It's like whatever the opposite of like writing Java code is where you have to really, really stare at it really hard to see the signal for the noise. Haskell is really just like 100% flipped over. It's, it's all signal and very, very little noise. Especially if you're not getting fancy with it. Like if you just are like sticking to like data types and functions, then it's very, very understandable. Start getting into all the other generics and higher kinded whatever, whatever's like, I don't know, like that. I I start to, I don't really dig into all that because it's not my thing. Yeah. I'm not like a type person in that sense. I want to express problems and Haskell lets me do that. Sometimes I have a, as much Haskell as I've, I've looked at over the years, I still have a hard time. Every once in a while, when I'm looking at a composed function, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so where are these parentheses and, and like, right. what's going on? And I really have to step back and walk through what's right. happening every time. I hope to one day be able to look at Haskell and it be a little more intuitive, but yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. Well, that's why, I'll, I mean, that's also why I just stick to prototypes because it gets out of my way enough to build the prototype. And then when I'm done building the prototype, I'm going to build it in something that I would actually run in production because... I'm not all about the the Haskell production life. There's a lot of barriers to the entry for in, in there. But I, you know, I think starting there and throwing it away and working and building it in like Elixir or something else is a good place to go because you can express the problem in much fewer lines than you can in even in Elixir. Elixir's got more sort of syntactical stuff. I mean, but Haskell mm-hmm. also is so terse that I think it almost becomes impossible to read at some level. And I also, I mean, I don't, I stay away from all of the stupid language extensions like i stay away from stack and cabal and mm-hmm. all those things like if i have to start getting involved with that i'm out like you've broken <laughs> my my spirit for wanting to do this my so, will to be here is, is yeah broken. no it, uh, yeah i immediately drops to zero and i'm out so i'm not here for it and the thing and the other thing is like just the language extensions and stuff are impossible to know you got to know so many of that stuff and then they just magically get added via comments somewhere. Like, how does this even work? I don't know. I'm not about that. But the core, the, the, the core thing in there is good. Except for records. Those are garbage. <laughs> they're like maps and structs. They're like a known, that's like a known thing. Like, I don't yeah. think, everybody thinks they're, they're bad. <laughs> garbage. Nice. I don't know. I know that you have a, a short timeline today. So how much, how much time do you have left? 15 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So you got a topic? Hit me with a topic. Oh, I don't know. I think that we had a topic. I don't really have anything explicitly Elixir related at this time, other than, you know, I do want to make sure that that we mention that the Elixir community, Erlang community, just lost a pretty good mentor Mm -hmm. in Joe Armstrong. And so, I don't know, my heart goes out to their family. I think our hearts go out to his family and... And to everybody that knew him, I've really been enjoying seeing everybody share on on Twitter 
pictures and talks and and papers that he's written and and uh, it's it's kind of amazing to see how many people that that man has been able to influence and in touch over the years Mm -hmm. so yeah i i I met him once for a minute (laughs) just kind of in passing at, at a strange loop and that was it so i wish i'd been able to spend more time with him i don't know do you have any any joe stories i uh i got to have dinner with him my very first Erlang conference. Oh, how long was ago the, was that? That was a while ago. Yeah, my very first Erlang conference. It was him, it was Joe Armstrong, and Dave Thomas arguing with each other over dinner. I can't <laughs> imagine was, the two of them ever right, I can't, you know, I just, it just blows my mind. <laughs> it, it was amazing. I think he, how do I say that? I mean, Fred wrote a great sort of art, uh, blog post, and then uh, Francesco wrote a great blog post as well kind of documenting some of these things and this is this is stuff that gets that's said a lot about joe but it's really true like he was so excited about everything he was working on and it really was infectious like you immediately were more excited to work on whatever it was that you were working on because he just sort of followed his like muse like wherever it took him and he had a ton of ideas some of which were, you know, shaky in the implementation details, but like foundationally, like really good, like really interesting, like really compelling ideas. I mean, the dude basically like did, thought about, like figured out how to do serverless like five years before anybody was talking about it. He was taught like he had all these just banana pants ideas <laughs> that really sort of pushed you to think about the status quo and like whether it was good or not and how do you i don't know like i I, that's the thing that i think was most interesting like he had he was just a fountain of like deeply interesting and compelling ideas and was genuinely excited about it was just happy to be programming and to see what he can make computers do and just like always laughing with that laugh about, about some bonkers idea that he'd come up with and was like playing around with i don't know that was really like deeply infectious and I didn't really get to like spend a whole lot of time with him. You know, I got to talk to him at dinner and stuff like that. And he was like passionately curious. Like he wanted to know what I was talking about and like what I was interested in. Like he was genuinely really curious and really excited about sharing his ideas. And I don't know. With anybody of any level is what I saw at Strange Loop. Mm-hmm. He got mm-hmm. passionate and excited about like what the beginner developers were doing he's like tell me about it and and they would be like oh no i don't want to take your time and that's what i remember when when i met him was just watching him interact with all these other people and it didn't matter what language they were using or how long they had been developing or anything if they he would ask and pull out of them hey what are you working on lately let me tell me about it and he would get excited about it i don't know i think that we all can learn a lot from that excitement and i think that we should should try to be excited about everybody's accomplishments around us and what they're learning because that'll only help make the community grow mm-hmm. yeah completely agree. so here's to here's to joe mm-hmm. cheers <laughs> well i think i kind of need to get out of here for the day i don't know about you yeah i gotta i gotta get ready we're gonna have the, the nfl draft is tonight oh so oh, and i'm on call luck. And oh, yeah. finishing a talk that I'm giving tomorrow and a bunch of other stuff. Whoa. What, where are you giving a talk tomorrow? I'm going to, well, by the time this comes out, it's going to be way over. So yeah, but hopefully I saw it. you there, but uh, I will be giving a talk at Lambda Squared in Knoxville, Tennessee, which I'm very excited about. 
It's a bunch of my, nice. a bunch of my friends and, uh, yeah, it should be really exciting. I'm going to be talking about all of the stuff I've been hinting at for a while now, which is all about contracts, data specification, testing, sort of the grand vision, all finally coalescing. So I'm really excited to show that to people. So how far drive away is that? Oh, it's like an hour and a half, like two hours, something like that. That's not bad. It'll be fine. I'm going to go up there, be on call for the draft, do the draft thing, be ready to solve whatever whatever may come and then <laughs> give my talk and then um uh, probably play some pinball or something oh nice nice mm-hmm. i should go play some pinball it's been too uh, long yeah we got a, a pretty cool pinball place in kc that i like to go to you sent me pictures of this and i'm very jealous well next time you're in town well yeah well, we'll, i need to we'll, i need to find ways to, to we'll hit it up there's mm-hmm. also a place that redoes old pinball machines right down the road from that pinball bar so that's pretty cool nice. too. Very you can cool. Go take a tour, and they'll show you all kinds of stuff. So I, uh, we we will also be in Chattanooga mm-hmm. for Gig City Elixir. Yeah, October, we will. Was it seventeenth and nineteenth? I think I will find the exact date or sixteenth to eighteenth, something like that. Hang on, I'm working oh, on you're, it. You're looking it up. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, I don't have the dates here. I will find the dates. The dates will be in show notes. Yeah, that'll be a good place for them. And then um, I think we're all Are you going to Elixir being, being at Elixir Conf, yeah, in uh, Aurora. Denver. Aurora, actually, Aurora. which is a suburb of Denver. Aurora. Uh, which is a pretty neat place. Maybe I'll uh, head up a little early or stay a little after and go fly fishing. If anybody else wants to go, reach out, let me know, and we'll we'll see what we can we can plan. Very nice. And anything else? Anything else coming up that you're going to? Um, not, not that I can think of right now. Just trying to keep things going. Joined the Erlang and Elixir Foundation, trying to to get everything going with there. We are working on it on getting work groups and people joining together. But there's there's a lot of government hoops to jump through and legal things that you have to look at whenever you're doing a nonprofit organization. So we just want to make sure we're doing everything right. That's awesome. I want to hear more about this. We need to we need to probably do a whole episode on the foundation at some point. Cool. Maybe we can get some of the board members to to come on. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Hey, board members. I don't huh? know if you listen to this, but you should come. You should come be on the show. That's right. Reach out to us, board members. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good day. All right. Later, man. Bye, Chris.